and you know God is here. The Holy Spirit's in your hearts, and we are indeed on holy ground. The Bible says one day He's going to make all His enemies sit at His footstool, and He'll take control of this world. Can you imagine that when He sets up His kingdom and we just worship Him forever? And uh, that was just a blessing. I mean, it was. she can hit that high note better than I. And that's the truth. Oh, that was great. Thank you. Great to see each and every person here today. And, and again, we're so thankful for our Lord Jesus who made everything possible because he died on the cross for us as sinners. I, I, I've said this, I guess, a thousand times in my ministry over the years. It's God's ministry, but I serve in it. I'm always delighted and thankful that he uses me uh, because I know what I am. He knows what I am. And yet, His grace is sufficient. And that's just the greatness of our Lord. We're looking at Haggai today. Haggai. And one of the goals in my life was to have preached to you in the first year from all 66 books. But next month, I'll have been here a year, and I don't think I'm going to accomplish it, but we have preached to you from over 50 books. And this is a message I had prepared before and just wasn't the time. And, and today, I believe, is the right time to preach this. And so we ask you to find chapter 1. And uh, we're going to read chapter 1 in verse 8. Or verse, excuse me. We're going to read chapter 1, verse 1. And uh, we'll read a couple of more verses. When you find that, let's stand. It's a custom here to stand. And as we read together... In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Josabek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord built the house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, It is time. It is time. Let's pray. God bless us. Lord, we're, we're waiting for things to happen. You know us. You know what kind of people we are. We procrastinate. We want to see the excitement in a church and wait for things to happen so that we can talk about what's happening. But Lord, help us to make things happen. Because you've told us to go into the highways and hedges. You've told us to build lives. Uh, and, and so we just pray that you help us to be about our Father's business as you were. Bless now. God, hide me behind the cross so no one sees me, but they see the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Haggai was born in Babylon. He uh, was a contemporary of Zechariah. He was an exile, meaning he was a prisoner in uh, Babylon. And... Uh, he, along with Governor Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel's in the line of the Lord Jesus Christ is one of the kings that would sit on the throne. And they were both exiled, and he's writing after exile. He's returned to the land now, and he's writing. Uh, it's 520 years before Christ comes. And he's writing this prophetic message. His name means festive. Haggai means festive. And he writes four, he gives us four messages in this book. A message of uh, construction. We're going to look at that today as they're about to rebuild the temple. They had started and they had floundered. And then a message of the coming of the Lord, the first coming. 
Jesus hadn't come to the earth the first time. Then a message of consequences that you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. And then a message of choosing. And, and Jeroboam is, is, is part of the chosen line. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ would come from his loins. We look at the first message today. And Haggai's task here, God has instructed him to, to preach and to challenge the people, to rouse them, to finish the house of God. And I want to say something today because I hear a lot of people talk about the church house and make it equal to the temple of God in the Old Testament. There's no comparison. This is just sheetrock. This is just wires. I'm thankful for our wonderful place. But we are not called to build buildings today. This was a call to build the temple because that was where God dwelt. We are called today to build a lot of individual temples. Because your body is a temple and the Holy Spirit indwells your body. And we need to build lives today. We come to church, we need to learn, we need to grow, we need to be encouraged, sometimes rebuked, not always, but sometimes we need to be encouraged, we're discouraged. And there's nothing like coming to the house of God when you've had a bad week or a rough time or a busy week or you've made some mistakes and for someone to come up and say something encouraging. That's what we do. We build. In fact, the word exhort means to build. And thank God we can build lives today. So I want to just clear that up because people will talk about building. They'll use this passage to uh, teach or preach about building a building onto their church or a new building. Yet, we don't find that to be scriptural, but we do find here they needed to build a building the temple, the house of God. And that's what this is about. Haggai was charged with rousing them to build. Judah's problem, the nation of Judah, was procrastination, poverty, materialism. Those that were wealthy didn't want to spend money on God's house. And, and, and then the, the solution would be to uh, get busy or lose your prosperity. God was going to take away uh, from them if they didn't repent. Because they were prospering and God's going to take it away. I don't believe in a prosperity gospel, but I do believe that the children of Israel, when they sin, God would bring them to poverty. He'd bring them to drought. He'd take away things from them and cause them to get to their knees. And, and so we, we see here in, in verse 1, it's the second year of Darius, 520 B.C. Darius took over in 522, and the times of the Gentiles has begun. Look over to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. I want to read a verse here today from Luke 24 or 21 24. But what, what, Pastor, what is the time? What, what's the reference to the times of the Gentiles or the time of the Gentiles? Well, we're going to address that briefly. I thought it was ironic. Our Sunday school lessons seem to tie in with what I have written right here and typed out on this page. Chapter 21, verse 24 of Luke. Look what it says 21 24. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles. And the times of the Gentiles, or that the, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Pastor, what is this a reference to? Well, in 722, Assyria came in and took the northern kingdom. That did not include Jerusalem. So most scholars have two opinions. One is that it began in 586 when Babylon took over Jerusalem and just destroyed the people and destroyed the temple and ran the people off and they were scattered all over the world. 
But most scholars say, let's start with A.D. 70. Why? Because after 586, remember, they began to return. Thousands returned, 50,000 at one time, and thousands returned. They were still scattered, and more Jews were scattered than returned, but they rebuilt the temple. But in A.D. 70, when Israel was destroyed, I mean, there was nothing left. The temple again was destroyed, and almost every Jew left the, left the land. There are a few farmers that came back and resettled, but mostly the Arabs had moved in and kind of taken over, uh, not with hostility, but they had moved in, and that's why the Palestinians today say it's our country because we were there first. Well, their ancestors were there, you know, in the, it, when Joshua came in, but the Jews had been given the land by God, we know that. And so we know that in 1948, they came from 106 nations. Think about that. A fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy. They came and returned to the land. And thousands upon thousands and millions of Jews, and today they have, I think, the sixth most powerful military. And the desert is blooming as you drive through and see all the things growing. You're like, how can they make all this stuff bloom? And, and it's God putting his hand on the children of Israel. And so we now are in the beginning of the end. The times of the Gentiles will end ultimately when God defeats them militarily and sets up his kingdom. But we're, we're heading towards that because 1948 indeed was a fulfillment of many prophecies and the Jews are there to stay. And so here now we're backing up in time to when they have returned and they're building another kingdom. It's the sixth month, the first day of the month, which is a holy day. Every month they had a holy day to start the month. It's also a Saturday, which was their normal holy day. And so he's got their attention. And God instructs Haggai to preach. And he preaches to the spiritual and to the secular leadership. Zerubbabel was a, was a secular leader, the king, and the spiritual leader, the high priest Joshua. And he charges them with a message. And he said, God wants us to finish this house. They returned under Cyrus' decree in 539, and they came back to the Holy Land. And three years later, in 536, they began to build. But now ten years has passed, and they hadn't done anything. And the house of God lie waste. And so we see in verse 1, he speaks, it says, the word of the Lord, and that's Yahweh, a name revered by Jews so much that about in 1800s, they replaced Yahweh with a hybrid word, Yehovah, taking the consonants from uh, Yahweh and the, the accent marks from Adonai and come up with Yehovah. We call it Jehovah because they were fearful of that name. So for the last few hundred years, it hadn't been in the text. Yahweh, we find Jehovah or Adonai or Lord in different names. But here, 13 times in this book, we find Yahweh's mention. And then four times in Haggai, we have this phrase, thus saith the Lord. Here's what Yahweh said. Now, who is Yahweh? Who is that Old Testament covenant God? Well, we know that the I am of the Old Testament was none other than Jesus. When he said before Abraham was, I am. And so I've read so much on Jehovah because my Jehovah's Witness friends and come and talk to me about Jehovah and I've been able to talk to them sometimes to explain to them, yes, I believe in Jehovah. I believe in the Lord of the Old Testament. I believe in the one that, that appeared in the fiery furnace and the captain of Joshua's army. 
And so I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who's always existed. Did you know that? And always will exist. He didn't begin in Bethlehem. He's way back in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. And so we believe that in Yahweh, and we believe in the covenant God of the Old Testament. We believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So thus saith the Lord. And he says in verse 2, this people, I find that interesting. This people say the time is not come. This group of people say it's not time to build. He doesn't say my people as he often does. You know, when, when, you're, when you're not a believer, you're not a child of God. And collectively, collectively the Jews have been a, a lost people for generations. We know one day they'll become His people again. They're His chosen. But until they repent and receive Jesus, they're not God's people. Do you know, I, I get so tired of, of you know, the, the world's take on, uh, on being a child of God is that everybody's a child of God. But that's not scriptural. You have to repent of the fact that you're a sinner, admit that you're a sinner, and receive Jesus to become a child of God, John 1.12. And so he calls the children of Israel, he says, this people, not my people. And they say it's not time to build. They were disobedient. They were procrastinated. And and uh, I, I know there's been times in, in my dad's life when he was ashamed to say, as a son. You probably thought about saying that's Maryland's son. <laughs> or I don't know who that kid is. Uh, my dad came to some of my sporting events, and we had some problems at a couple of them, and I'm sure he's a little embarrassed, a deacon in the church, and his son was kind of a rabble-rouser sometimes. And, you know, God never, never turns his back on us. When we're his children and we sin, we're still his children. He always says that. But here he says this people, because the children of Judah weren't doing the right thing. And he wanted them to finish the house. It wasn't finished. He says here, here the Lord of hosts, verse 2, uh, the that the house should be built. The house should be built. So the Lord of all the armies says we need to build the house. What was the problem? Procrastination and poverty. Also, the ones that had a lot of money were materialistic. Look what he says. Thus, then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet saying, it is time. For you that dwell in your sealed houses, that this house and this house lie waste. What were they doing? The wealthy people built fancy paneled houses with cedar, uh, described in Kings, just like Solomon's house. They had really nice houses, but they wanted to use the cheap materials for the house of God. So the materialistic people uh, were cheap and didn't want to give, and and God's upset about it. He said, "These people." It's time to build. You live in your fancy houses and the house of God just sits there empty and unfinished. And he said, Now therefore, saith the Lord of hosts, again the Lord of hosts, again the Lord, consider your ways. That's a great word. It means really to repent. But they, they didn't build because they were lazy and, and uh, you know, they, they, they just were cheap. And, and a lot of them were poor. I, I thought this was a cute track. Somebody gave me this little track. Fred, somebody. Thomas, everybody. Susan, anybody. And Joe, nobody were neighbors. Yeah, and it goes on to say, all four belonged to the same church. Everybody went on Sunday or else, uh, if, if, you know, elsewhere or, excuse me, 
everybody went elsewhere on Sunday or just stayed home. Anybody wanted to worship but was afraid somebody would be rude to them. So nobody went to church. And really, nobody was the only decent one of the four. Nobody did the visitation. Nobody did the work on the church building. And when they needed a Sunday school teacher, everybody thought anybody would do it, and anybody thought somebody would do it. And you know who did it? Exactly, nobody. Goofy track. But a lot of times when it comes to doing the work that needs to be done, and I'm not talking about the physical labor. I'm talking about the spiritual labor. We just guess someone else is going to do it. We sit at home, we think, oh, brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, it's had a hard week. Isn't that sad? I hope the pastor calls them. Maybe the pastor will. But what should you do at that moment? Pick up that phone and call that person and say, just want you to know that I'm praying for you. Do you know what that does to someone? Do you know what that does? That lifts them up. That encourages them. And what we all suppose is that somebody's taken care of me. And we think, well, this person has a real need, and I sure hope the church does what they should do. But what about you doing what you should do by picking up that phone or making a cake or cutting their grass or going over there and helping that person doing what needs to be done? We always presume somebody else is going to do it, but God wants us to do it. Did you know every one of us is called to encourage? We're all called to a ministry of reconciliation. We're all called to encourage. And he says in verse 5, consider your ways. Now this phrase is only found twice in all the Bible. Both times are here in this chapter. Verse 5 and verse 7. What does that mean? That simply means to repent. Now, verses 6 to 11 tell us that they had a real problem with poverty. God was just holding back blessings because of their unwillingness to do the work of God. You have sown much and bring in little. And their agriculture was bad. Look over at chapter 2 and verse 19. Is the seed yet in the barn? That's an interesting question. It's rhetorical because the answer is they didn't have any good seed. And we find in Scripture, there's several different descriptions of seed. You know, in Psalm 126, the precious seed. It talks about when they came back from Babylon and planted seed, and that was precious seed, and they reaped the harvest. And we a lot of times apply that to ministry of, of witnessing and so forth. But over in Joel 1.17, the Bible talks about another kind of seed, corrupt seed. We have corrupt seed, compromising seed, and compassionate seed. Corrupt seed is called rotten in Joel. Compromise seed is called mingled in Leviticus 19.18. Yet a lot of times that's what we plant in our life. We plant mingled seed, which is seed of compromise. We plant rotten seed and wonder why we don't have good fruit. Listen, if you're a jerk all week, you're not going to be fruit bearing. We need to plant the right kind of seed. And so they had sown much and brought in very little. And then it goes on to say back in verse 6, it says, you, you, you have not enough to drink. You're not, you have enough to drink, but you're not filled with drink. You, you, you have clothing, but, but nobody's warm. And it says, he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put into a bag with holes. That's inflation. So they had a bad economy. They had inflation. And Moses said that back in, in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy. He said, Israel's going to get to a place where they work very hard and have nothing to show for it. 
That's where they are. Why? Because they didn't have the blessings of God on them. Quite often in the Old Testament, God chastened people by withholding rain and allowing for famine to move in. That's sad. I don't always equate Israel to America. I want you to understand that. It's not really biblical. Sometimes we do draw parallels. And maybe God will bring our country to its knees because of our sin and our lack of service to Him. I don't know that, but I see some signs, and we have thought that many times, haven't we? I'm careful when I see a tragedy in America to be compassionate rather than to just get up right away and say, that's God's judgment on that city. Why am I careful to do that? Because inside that city there may be believers and good people that are hurt. God says enough about it, and we know that God still judges nations, and the Bible says He will judge nations, and God will deal with America. But I'm not God to know when the trial is a judgment of God upon a certain city or a place. But I do know God's at work. And I do know God's going to deal with Israel. And, and, and he's, going to, he's going to get their attention. We know that. And they're going to repent when it comes to the tribulation period. So he says here, in verses 6 to 11, first of all, verse 7, he basically says here, repent for the second time. Why? It says, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Take a look in the mirror. And what I say to you is, consider your ways. Look in the mirror and see what you are. And all of us, when we look in the mirror of the Word of God, we see what we are, and it's never a pretty picture. And make the changes you need to make to be a blessing to people in your world. Call someone. Encourage them this week. Help someone this week. Witness to someone this week. You say, well, I don't feel like really I'm qualified. If you're born again, you're qualified. Yeah, that's what we think as well. I used to think as a young man, well, I'm not really going to witness to this person. I really don't know enough about the Bible. I could still use that excuse today, but it doesn't hold water. The Lord has lived in my life since the day I received him. And he has given, he's, he's, he's given me opportunity, and he's also given me ability because he can bring words to my mind that can come out my lips that are his words, and I can be useful to God by just submitting to him. And so there's no excuse. He says to repent. And then in verse 8, he says reconstruct. He says here, go up to the mountain and bring the wood, build the house. He, he said, I'll take pleasure in it, and I'll be glorified, saith the Lord. And that's what it's all about. Giving glory to God. We don't call others. We don't witness. We don't help people because we want to get a pat on the back. We know what we are. Oh, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Why do we do that? Because we want God to get glory. And so we do those things for God's glory. To please the Lord. To be obedient to Him. I mean, the impoverished church of the New Testament, the church that suffered was the strongest church spiritually. Persecution makes the church strong. And those early Christians, my son, Zach, who was in China, would tell me stories. He'd say, Dad, I was always so blessed. 
when I'd hear a Chinese person stand up and with tears say, thank you for coming and telling me about Jesus. And he said that happened quite a bit. He said, it just really got to me that that church was so persecuted. And yet, and yet, so blessed. And he said, I come home sometimes and I go to churches in the States and I don't hear that. And it makes me sad that we've become so materialistic and accustomed to the good life in America. What a great country we have. We are so blessed. Someone said yesterday, I've won the lottery. I was born in America. We're so blessed. And we take it for granted and we don't realize that Christians around the world suffer. And we don't. And we wonder why God's not blessing and why he's not working. It's because we haven't repented or we haven't begun to reconstruct. Repentance means to turn. When you say, I've repented and became a Christian, it means then there needs to be a change in your life and you need to start building a new life and building for God. It doesn't mean, oh God, be merciful for me, a sinner, and you cry out to God and He saves you and then you go and act the same way and live the same way that you used to live. No, it means you turn. And God wanted them to repent and then rebuild. In other words, building would be proof that they're submitting to God. To say, I'm sorry, God, we haven't built the house of God, and then not to start building would just be blasphemous. And so God says here, reconstruct. And if you don't reconstruct, he says you'll reap. He talks about in verses 9 and 10, you'll don't not have any fruit, you'll not have any dew, there'll be a drought. You know, sometimes I think there's a drought in the church. Sometimes I think we don't have power in the pulpit in preaching. I have to always examine my own heart and say, God, show me the sin I've committed. Help me to make it right. But God, preach through Your Word to folks and empower this message, even though I'm not a gifted speaker, that You'll speak through Your Word and touch hearts today. It's the only way it can happen is the power of God can break the drought. And sometimes we don't have any uh, fruit in the pews or any manna from heaven. We see people just going through the motions of living for God and no one really uh, counts the cost and gives their all. And there's no repentance sometimes in the pews. We, we have sinners come that don't get saved and Christians aren't confessing their sin and we need to confess our sin every day. That word catheter, that Greek word to cleanse, get the yuck out. I've said that ten times here. Confess daily. When you make mistakes, you have to admit it, and we have to confess it. And, and, and then there's no fruit in the field. We wonder why there's no fruit. Well, if there's no, you know, no power in the pulpit, no manna from heaven in the pews, and no repentance, and what do we expect? See, we're, we're going through the motions. And it's almost like we need some sort of persecution as a church. It's almost as though we need our government to say you can't preach anymore. I've heard things about they're going to make hate speech to preach against certain sins in our country. Well, let me tell you something. True preachers won't stop preaching because of their threats. We'll, we'll preach the truth. But is that what it's going to take for us as a church to grow spiritually? to be concerned enough to tell a neighbor about Jesus when, when every day we hear on the news tragedy. And what, what's the plan? God, there's provision in verses 12 to 15. And I love this. The Bible says that the people uh, obeyed. That's the word Shema. 
means to hear, listen, obey. They obeyed. They obeyed. And they feared the Lord in verse 12. They feared the Lord. Vow the last line, look at the word Lord all through verse 12. The high priest preached. And the Bible says in the middle, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them and the people did fear before the Lord. It's all about the Lord and they obeyed Him. And they feared Him. And they did the work and God blessed. I mean, three months later, bam, they're working. They finished the house of God. Awesome stuff. But notice in verse 13, Haggai, the Lord's messenger, in the Lord's messages and the people says, I am with you, saith the Lord. Again, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, I'm with you. That's a great phrase in the Bible. Someday you'll have to Google that and find all the little times he says, I am with you. Did you know he was with Isaac? And he was with Jacob, and Moses, and Joshua during the battle, and Paul during the preaching, and during uh, trials, and the disciples in witnessing, and he's also with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. The Bible says nothing can separate you from the love of God. I love Romans 8. Nothing can separate. A star that's great as zenith is what that means. The height and the depth is the, is the word bathos, meaning the star at its deepest point. Take the two stars in the, in the whole universe that are the farthest apart, and God, that can't separate you from God's love. Because He never leaves you. He's always with you. He said, I'll send you another comforter and he'll abide with you forever. John 14, 16. He never leaves us. And so the Bible said God stirred the people up and they began to build and they did the work. I love he that knoweth to do good doeth it not. I love faith without works is dead. They did the work. They worked for God. I love this little clipping. It's anonymous. It says here, a church that has passion is a church where discouraged folks cheer up, dishonest folks fess up, sour folks sweeten up, closed folks open up, gospers shut up, conflicted folks make up, sleeping folks wake up, lukewarm folks fire up, dry bones shake up, and the pew potatoes stand up. <laughs> That's what we need to do. That, that's what all we need. We need to do like Joshua, and, and, and we, need to, we need to take courage and say, for me and my house will serve the Lord. We need to encourage one another, and we need to do like Haggai and say, let's build lives. Let's build lives. I'm thankful for this building. I don't want to minimize that. But it's more important for you to call someone and say, God bless you, than for you to change a ceiling tile. Love our work days to see the people out working. Don't misunderstand me. And they know it. I tell them I appreciate it. But what's more important? This building or God's people? We build lives. Build lives. Encourage. Encourage. I love 1 Thessalonians 5.14. We'll close here. 23 days later, they started this work. But 1 Thessalonians 5.14 is a good passage. It says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. That's our calling. You know, it's not. we, we, we will have messages on witnessing, on evangelizing, on doing that. 
But today we're talking about Christians ministering to Christians and building one another. We all need the encouragement. Got a letter this week, and I tell you what, I, I had a six, I had a long board meeting, hard board meeting, where they basically said, Dan, what's your vision and what's your plan? I said, he just passed away last week. I don't have one. I don't know what's going to do. I'd written on a piece of paper, wait on the Lord, because I need his direction as I have a little mission board. And they kept saying, but didn't you, don't you have a plan? And I, and I, I, I defended, um, my my um, leadership and actions over they're sweet guys we had a good meeting but I finally held up this paper and said this is what I'm doing and I had wait on the Lord big letters I'd written while they're asking me what I'm going to do I don't know what I'm going to do but depend on the Lord did you know that it, it, it's about what God's plan is for my life for this church for the little mission I have it's God's plan and I have to work according to his schedule. I want everything to happen now. But I'm dependent on the Lord, and so are you. And if you're a believer, it started at Calvary. You know what? When Jesus died, you began to depend on him right then and there. You didn't know it, but the goodness of God led you to repentance. That you had life and that you could breathe air and that you had an opportunity to hear the gospel. Those were all things God gave you. But at Calvary, you finally realized, I need to depend on the Lord Jesus. As He made a way where there wasn't a way. There's no other way but Jesus. Jesus, 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 the sweetest name I know. And because of that name, and under no other circumstances, and no other name can men be saved. I made fun on a Wednesday night. I said, you can't find another so-called Savior that has risen from the dead. They're all dead. They're all dead because they all don't really exist. All the gods are false gods. Read Psalm 82. Our God, one God, one Lord, Deuteronomy 6, is Jesus. He's the only way. I said Buddha's just massively overweight. What can he do for you? In Allah, I mean, what has he ever done? And, and, and what happened to all those gods of the Old Testament? We don't hear about Baal. Anybody worship Baal today? No. They're all gone. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and He's our Savior. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You. I know, God, that when I preach, it's You that speaks to hearts. It's your word that speaks in your Holy Spirit. I don't know the hearts of people here today. I know my own and I know my needs, but you do. And Lord, I don't know how you've spoken, but you have because your word never returns void. And where one person is encouraged today, maybe another is rebuked, maybe another is convicted. We just ask you to work in each heart as you do, as you're a personal Savior. And thank you, Father, for Jesus, for sending him to die for our sins, and for Jesus being obedient to the call. Bless us now as we examine our hearts and know our altars are always open.
always open no matter what the need. So we pray for you to just move and work in hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.